Dotnet Rocks episode 683 with guest Mark Rendell. Recorded live Wednesday, June 29th, 2011. This episode is brought to you by Telerik and by Franklin's.net, training developers to work smarter. And now offering video training on Silverlight 4 with Billy Hollis and SharePoint 2010 with Sahil Malik. Order online now at franklins.net. And now here are Carl and Richard. Thank you very much. Welcome back to .NET Rocks. It's .NET for an hour with Carl and Richard and special guests. Hey, man, what's up? Uh, not much. How about you? Oh, you know, uh, I can't really, I don't really have any banter today. You're banterless. I'm bantered out, so I guess we'll just jump into Better Know Framework. Awesome. All right, what do you got? Yeah, so I like to go back and forth between classes and, and projects and resources. So I, I was looking at CodePlex and the most downloaded, uh, uh, or the most popular downloads. And I came across this interesting project from Microsoft Spain. Huh. It's a domain-oriented, n-layered .NET 4.0 sample application. Interesting. And it's at, oh, let me see if I can read this small URL here. And it's at Microsoft N Layer App, all one word, dot codeplex.com. Microsoft N Layered App. And the, the uh, project scope says it's a sample implementation of most used patterns in domain oriented architectures based on simple scenarios easy to understand, such as customers, orders, bank transfers, etc. It shows isolated scenarios useful from a patterns implementation point of view but not necessarily as a whole business application. The architecture is decoupled and relatively complex, so it will allow you to grow your system. And I, I like this because, you know, everybody needs those sample apps to just sort of see what the end result should look like. Yeah, what know? it should feel like, all those different pieces. So, That's yeah, right. I love this. Domain layer, app layer, data persistence layer, presentation layer, yeah. services layer. This and, is the way it should be. Yeah, and, you know, most samples are either too stupid or... You know, they challenge your, they, they, they're too complex. So this one looks pretty good. And the reviews are, are great. Uh, great work, trendy technologies and a professional architecture ready to, uh, ready for the real world. Good stuff. So Richard, who's talking to us? I grabbed a comment off the website from show 664, which if you recall is the radio astronomy show. Oh, that was fun. One of my favorites. We had such a good time doing those shows and the guys were amazing. And we got an e uh, we got a comment from Sean DeWet and he says, Hey guys, as a South African, I was listening somewhat more intently at this one ah. since our Kalahari Desert is one of the candidate sites for the square kilometer array. Yeah. And having Australia as our competition makes it a bit more personal too. Since the rugby history between the two countries has ensured that in the event of the square kilometer array going to Australia, we will certainly feel that we lost the competition and we hate losing to Australia. <laughs> Yeah. Anyway, something you said during this discussion made me feel this loss coming on in a big way. You mentioned the enormous power requirements of the project to the extent that a small nuclear plant may suffice. Mm. You see, we had nasty power outages in 2008, and South Africa has been somewhat on the power rationing mentality, and the public has been led to believe we're on the brink of a power crisis. Hmm. Old mothball power stations are recommissioned, and two new huge power stations are under construction, but their effect won't be felt till late in the decade. Sadly, this has to do with our history and how the power infrastructure that used to serve about less than 10 million people is now expected to serve about 40 million people, bringing electricity to every home, and they realize it a bit late, and the existing infrastructure would just not handle it, hence the current situation. So I expect us to lose to Australia, but at least it's not the rugby field. I think a .NET Rocks mug might help me draw my sorrows. Yeah, and also maybe think of uh, think of a way we can change the world power-wise. You know, there's a lot of smart people out there that listen to our show. Here's a challenge. Solve the power problem. <laughs> that, well, and you know what's interesting is South Africa was also one of the leading developers in pebble bed nuclear technology. Which is? Pebble bed's a totally different way of do it using nuclear technology that is much lower risk. As the heat goes up, it naturally reduces its power, so there's just no way to have a meltdown. Hmm. It also runs in what's called a medium cycle. It's a lot lower temperature in general, so it can use less pure uh, uranium. You don't have to do as much uh, refining and so forth. In fact, if it works the way it was supposed to work, 
the current spent fuel rods that are sitting in all nuclear plants all over the world would be fuel for a pebble bed reactor. Uh, guys, what I just told you about solving the power problem, never mind, Richard just did it. <laughs> the problem is that it's a very difficult technology to develop, and the yeah. South Africans are pretty much the only ones working on it since President Clinton shut down the Hanford Research Facility in Washington, oh, which darn. really is frustrating because I felt like we were right on the cusp of a revelation in uh, in power generation in that space. So wow. it's just not being worked on anymore because it's expensive. We're talking billions of dollars in research, but the outcome could be stunningly good. So it's one of the reasons I read this comment is that it's near and dear to my heart that we come up with better solutions to power. Yeah. And we've got these great technologies are just so close. We just need to pour some energy into it. Anyway, Sean, I'm happy to drown your sorrows as a mug on its way to South Africa. And if you've got questions, comments, ideas, even if they're not necessarily technology, I'll happily talk electricity all day. Send us an email at dotnet rocks at franklins.net or write a comment on any show at the dotnet rocks website. And before we send you that mug, we're going to uh, break it in with a little uh, Woodford Reserve bourbon. <laughs> of course. <laughs> hey, we got to wash it out after all. We got to do something. We don't want to get any, send you any uh, airborne or foodborne diseases. Uh, Richard, it's a really interesting show today because our guest is none other than Mark Rendell. Uh, Mark is the man behind Simple.Data. He's currently employed as Principal Software Architect at .NET Solutions Limited, where he creates all manner of software and services on the Microsoft stack, including ASP.NET MVC, Windows Azure, WPF, and Silverlight. He's been a Windows Azure Development MVP since April 2011. And in his spare time, Mark works on the Simple.Data, not an ORM project, and builds developer-centric tools for mobile devices, including the award-winning Pocket C-Sharp for Windows Phone 7. Welcome, Mark. Hi. So you you do all this work. Uh, you, you're inventing all sorts of great software. You're married. You have a baby. When do you sleep? Um, sleep is for the week. <laughs> um, it's a Klingon phrase, isn't it? No, I kind of I go until I drop. If I if I say I'm going to sleep now, then I my my brain just goes, no, you're not. Um, yeah. So I just keep going, doing whatever it is that I feel like doing until I actually pass out, and then my wife comes down and finds me at four o'clock in the morning on the sofa. <laughs> and uh, I just I, hope that I manage to get a good kind of commit and a push in before that happens. I remember those days fondly. You're, it sounds <laughs> like you're recalling moments from my past. Well, let's talk about uh, simple.data, and you say fervently that it's like an ORM without O, R, or M. Yeah. What, what do you mean by that? Okay, so it's, it's uh, dynamic-based, um, and so there aren't really any objects, um, or not in the sense that ORMs have objects. Um, and... Uh, it talks to relations databases, but it also has the ability to talk to any other data source you can think of. Um, and so someone's written an adapter to get it sort of MongoDB. So you can throw the relational out. Um, and the mapping thing isn't really there because what it actually does is it pulls things out of the database and presents them as dynamic. And then those dynamic objects do have the ability to cast themselves to statically typed objects, but you don't have to. So there's not necessarily any mapping going on either. So essentially, it's uh, an API that returns these blobs that are just data structures that are dynamic, made up on the fly, typeless, I imagine. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, and since you don't have, you use them directly. You don't have to map them into entities. Um, yeah, so that's right. So I also imagine that um, you would not be using this with Entity Framework or something like that. You'd use it in lieu of any other kind yeah. of, yeah. Yeah, you use it instead of Entity Framework or, or in Hibernate or the the Code First or Fluent versions of those. Right. Um, and are these blobs that are these blobs that come back? Are they bindable blobs? Uh, yeah, you can use them as the model in uh, in an ASP.MVC page, um, and you can bind directly to them from XAML in uh, in WPF at the moment. I haven't actually got uh, a build working in hmm. Silverlight yet, but that is something that I want to do right. uh, in a while. 
after you sleep. After I sleep <laughs> for about a month, yeah. <laughs> so, uh, so where's what's the downside? I mean, you obviously is there is there are there any trade offs? Are there any things that you're trading off for this kind of dynamic flexibility? Yeah, the the big trade off um, is that because. Uh, you don't generate a repository. You don't generate like a, an entity context, mm. and so you don't get IntelliSense. Oh. That's the big trade-off for, okay. for your average C Sharp or VB.NET developer. Is that you say uh, database to open, give it a connection string, and then that gives you back a dynamic object, and then you say database dot, and it just gives you the four basic object methods that all .NET ob- objects have. And that's it. There's no kind of properties on there. Um, and so you lose that element of discoverability. Um, if they're so dynamic, compared, could you not generate um, generate uh, enumerations or something? Um, I've been looking at uh, writing an IntelliSense plugin that will actually hook into the database at, uh, at design time um, and see if I can inject... Uh, IntelliSense into Visual Studio so that if it knows you're looking at your customer's database, then it'll show you mm. properties for, for all those uh, tables that are in there. Is that uh, your number one uh, uh, request, IntelliSense? Uh, no, not really. Um, <laughs> uh, my number one request... Um, I've kind of dealt with them all, actually. <laughs> So it's perfect. For, it's perfect for for providers or adapters for for different data sources, um, yeah. and uh, since I've done sort of over the last few weeks, I put in a full querying system which can do kind of grouping and explicit joins and all sorts of other um, stuff. So you can essentially represent the entire body of a, a SQL select statement, but using simple data's kind of dynamic. Um, it's almost a DSL, really. Well, that that and uh, that now has made most people happy. Well, that uh, sounds an awful lot like Link. It is. It's very, very much like. It looks almost exactly like Link, but you haven't had to generate thousands of lines of XML um, into your project in order to be able to write Link-looking statements. Um, and it's also a lot faster than Link to SQL and a hell of a lot faster than Entity Framework. Did you think of just implementing iQueryable so that you could snuggle up to Link? I did, and I looked into it, and uh, David Fowler at Microsoft um, also looked into this when he was doing the WebMatrix uh, data access component. And the problem with iQueryable is that expressions can't include dynamic types. Oh, so a func can take a dynamic parameter, but an expression of a func can't take a func that takes a dynamic parameter. So you can't do all that getting in there and jumping around and ripping things apart. So um, the the queryable thing is out of the question at the moment. Mm. Um, and I'm not expecting Microsoft to particularly go back and pile more stuff into dynamic because uh, I think those guys are a lot like me. They kind of get a feature done, and they go, right, it's done. Let's go and do something else exciting. Did you um, you uh, you used React, the reactive extensions in uh, in building simple.data, did you not? I did, and then I got rid of them again. <laughs> so how, what, tell us that story. Um, so what I wanted to achieve was uh, getting a connection to a database open and pulling everything out as quickly as possible and then closing the connection to the database again because database connections are expensive Mm. and they're not things that you want to lock up for ages. And so because I am presenting the results of a query as an i-enumerable, people might sit there and go, okay, for each, and now I'm going to do something that takes two seconds and then I'm going to go around the for each again. And if you're doing that and there's a thousand rows sat there waiting to be processed by that for each, that's going to take a long time and the connection's held open. So I wanted to kind of pull everything into a buffer um, and then present that as an enumerable. And Reactive Extensions has a fantastic way of doing that because you can basically say, okay, I'm going to turn it into an observable 
and then I can just push the rows as I fire hose them out of the database into the observable, and then reactive extensions has a uh, two enumerable method which handles all this buffering internally with a, a dynamic queue and all this sort of thing. Um, and it worked really nicely. And the nice thing was that as soon as the first row was returned, your for each loop started enumerating, so you weren't waiting on all that buffering to happen if you were selecting a lot of rows back. But before you'd finished enumerating, the database connection was closed and back in the pool and other people could use it or other threads could use it or whatever. And so I was very happy. And then the reactive guys decided not to play nicely with NuGet. Oh. And so they took off the strongly named version assembly that Simple Data was depending on and replaced it with another new one. And everyone's code stopped working. Um, and I just thought, well, I can't have dependencies on projects that are going to do that kind of thing to me um, in my code. And they've actually released 1.0 today, and they're coming on. This is it. It's 1.0. We're going to support this one. It's going to be around for a while. And so I could potentially look at taking that dependency back again. Um, but at the time, I threw my toys out of the pram and went, damn you. Yeah. So. so how do you go about doing testing against simple data? Uh, mostly behavior tests, really. Um, so I have, uh, I have an ADO adapter. Uh, which works with IDB connection and IDB command and that sort of thing. And I have a set of, uh, I'm still not sure whether they're mocks or they're stubs, but they're basically uh, a set of classes that will be an IDB connection and a, and a command and all that sort of thing, um, which I can in initialize with in-memory schema. And so I set all that up in, in the behavior tests project, and then I can just call my dynamic calls and sort of database.open.products.findallbytype um, order by this, dot skip that many, dot take this many, hmm. um, and then just uh, verify that that created the right SQL. Um, and that proves most things, and that's the kind of quick, um, you know, every time I, I save the code, I have uh, Mighty Moose set up, and it just goes off and it runs all those in-memory, uh, lightweight, quick tests. And then I also have um, specific tests for the SQL Server provider and the SQL Compact provider to make sure that things are working when you run them against an actual database, because mm. obviously it's not much use if they don't. Right. But, yeah, there are nearly 300 tests now, I think. Um, and it's very hard to work out the coverage because uh, the coverage tools tend to find it difficult to go from my dynamic syntax and work out where the code path execution is from that. But uh, I just kind of go, everything I think should work seems to be working. Um, and so there may be some slight issues in some places, but as long as I have naught dot at the front of it, then I'm okay just to kind of hope for the best and, and fix things quickly if people do find problems. The perpetual beta. Um, there are things that people turn up and I kind of go, oh, head slap moment. Um, That's a plop right there. Yeah. <laughs> um, not the least of which was I... I spent some time really trying to optimize the um, the bejesus out of the find by um, functionality because I was uh, going up against Sam Saffron and Rob Connery and their micro ORM tools which are very very quick at doing that and so I spent uh, a couple of evenings kind of going over the code and caching a load of stuff and, and creating um, dynamic methods on the fly and that sort of thing. And I got it really, really quick. And I was like, yay. And it's within sort of, um, for 500 queries, it was within four hundredths of a second of those guys. 
Um, and then someone sent me a pull request a few days ago saying, you realize you're executing the query twice. I fixed that for you. And I went wow. in and looked, and he was right. Um, so, yeah, that was an interesting. I sort of made all that effort to, to optimize at this kind of micro level and then just go, let's run that twice then. It's a every single request community in at its best right there. Mm. Yeah. I get a lot of, um, I've been really impressed with the, the community on this. There's people who are, who are just picking it up and using it and, and giving me kind of lots of nice feedback. And this is great. And, and could you just get it to do this? And, mm. and if you could just do that, I'll, I'll go away. Um, and people have kind of pitched in and written uh, providers for the ADO adapter. Um, so uh, there's a guy, uh, Bobby Johnson, did a SQLite adapter. Um, and another guy has done a MySQL adapter. Um, and uh, yet another guy has done um, an Oracle adapter, which nice. was, wow. that was a big feature request. Lots of people were going, if it supported Oracle, I'd use it. And Frank uh, Quednow, Quednor, um, came along and he's written uh, an Oracle provider for it and also um, submitted quite a lot of improvements to the code for the for the core project. Um, so I just, I've given him commit rights on the uh, central repository now. Um, so he just fixes things when he gets the time. This portion of .NET Rocks is brought to you by our good friends at Telerik. Hey, can you ever have too many free tools to complement your development skills? I didn't think so. So our friends at Telerik are giving you now more than 30 free products for application development, automated testing, agile project management, and content management. And we're talking free-free. Not a trial, not a demo, but free, complete products supported by a community of over 440,000 developers at Telerik Forums. From free ASP.NET AJAX, ASP.NET MVC, and Silverlight controls to the free ORM solution and automated testing framework to free agile management tools and content management systems, all of these and more are available to you for immediate download at Telerik.com slash free stuff. Most of the free products can be used for commercial purposes and give you access to supplemental support resources such as documentation and forms. Go to Telerik.com slash free stuff now and take full advantage of the available free of charge products. And don't forget to thank them for supporting .NET Rocks. Well, and interesting to just, you know, you make an interesting statement about certain folks that start contributing to your project where they're, they're apparently as committed as you are to it. Yeah, which is weird and quite <laughs> <a> responsibility. <laughs> Um, yeah, it's, it's one of those things where, you know, uh, I didn't start this to kind of go, here's a huge thing that I want thousands of people to use. Um, I, it kind of happened by mistake. Um, but fortunately it's something, it's the, you know, this kind of, uh, framework programming and creating APIs. That's my favorite bit of programming. Um, I'm rubbish at user interfaces. <laughs> um, so, you know, fortunately, where I work, we, we get people in to kind of design the UX. We're, we're very um, aware of what we can do and what we can't. And so if someone says they need a, a funky UI, then we'll just get a partner in and, and work with them on that. But I like kind of fiddling around with the nuts and bolts and the data access and, you know, on streams and... I love that stuff too. And all that kind of good stuff. Um, and so, uh, for simple data to get kind of picked up just to the extent that it has so far, and it's by no means kind of huge or anything, but, um, it's got, uh, a growing following. Um, and so these people are pushing it in, in directions that I'm finding really interesting to, to work on and follow through on. You've talked through nice various SQL adapters. What about the NoSQL type uh, data sources? Um, so, I mean, this came from the Ruby data mapper library. Right. Um, which Ruby has two uh, ORMs, got Active Record and Data Mapper. And Active Record is very much, I am a, a relational database 
ORM. That's what I do. Mm-hmm. Uh, whereas Data Mapper has basically said, what I'm going to do is I'm going to take all this stuff over here and I'm going to turn it into hashes in Ruby and then I'm going to pass them through to your adapter and you give me hashes back and I'll turn those back into objects. And so it's just got this this uh, this like doorway or, or bridge or whatever over which only hashes pass. And so Simple Data takes the same approach with its adapters, except it's everything is a dictionary of string and object. And uh, that means that it'll map very nicely to all sorts of things, as well as relational databases. The only one that's kind of out in the wild and uh, getting supported is MongoDB so far. Um, But someone was talking about doing one for Couch. Someone was talking about doing one for Redis. And I am going to be doing one for Azure Table Storage. Nice. Wow. So, because, you know, fundamentally, I mean, if you get into joins and and grouping and all this sort of stuff, there's things that relational databases are extremely good at, and it's probably going to be quite hard to make simple data do those things against every possible data store. Right. I wrote an adapter for the registry, which was evil, and I have burned the code. Um, <laughs> I was, yeah. yeah if you're, sorry? I was going to say, yeah, rest in peace. In a lead-lined coffin at the bottom of the sea for that one. <laughs> you do not want to be running select statements against HQ local machine. What could oh, go man. wrong? Yeah. <laughs> Please wait. Um, do you do you think that when you're implementing the Azure provider that you will be able to maintain absolute backward compatibility with uh, with the uh, the interface in terms of what the user uses? Um, mostly. Um, there are things that you can do in SQL, like you can say group on this, um, and order by that. The Azure table storage doesn't support in the same way. And so, uh, the, the choice basically is to go, okay, I will do what I can with filters and that sort of thing. And then I'll just start pulling data back and I'll do the rest of it in memory. Um, but I think uh, what I'd like to end up with is a kind of a fairly high, low and common, lowest common denominator uh, yeah. that can say, okay, find by will work, find all why will work, these couple of bits of query will work, insert, update, delete will all work. Um, but then there's kind of like a, a red line and everything right. the wrong side of that red line is provider or adapter specific, um, and so your mileage may vary. Yeah. Do you think uh, the the you, your users will come to expect that? I mean, do you, for example, do you do you expect that um, somebody moving from SQL Server to say Mongo will expect all those features of the relational database in the in the uh, in simple data? I think I run the risk of leading them to expect that, yeah. Yeah, I, I would say that uh, you would have a, a separate interface for for those just because, you you know, they're two different animals and they're used quite differently. Yeah, and I, I see your point. Um, one of the nice things uh, with, with keeping it uh, common is that Whilst um, Azure Table Storage, as, as an excellent example, actually, um, can't do everything that a SQL database can do, a SQL database can do everything that Azure Table Storage can do. Right. And one of the issues that you have when you're developing for, uh, for an Azure project is that Table Storage isn't there when you're in dev mode, um, and you can, uh, you can use the local development uh, fabric, uh, which has a, an emulator that runs on top of uh, SQL Express. But if you run your website outside of the Azure Compute Emulator and Storage Emulator, then that's not there either, and you can't access it. And Simple Data would give you the ability to say, okay, I'm going to create a SQL Compact database or even an in-memory SQL-like database that 
uh, matches what I'm doing in table storage. And just by changing the connection string um, in the config file, I can run that on IIS Express or in Cassini or in my local IIS, and it will work against that database. And then I can deploy without making changes to the actual application code or the data access code, and it will run against Azure Table Storage. And that's one of the things I think is uh, is quite it's attractive to me because I do a lot of Azure development, um, and so being able to to achieve that parity uh, between two different data storage systems is something that I would find quite useful. Yeah, I see that you're a that you fancy Nancy. <laughs> I do fancy Nancy. Yeah. I've always wanted to say that. Uh, what is Nancy? Nancy is. Um, it's a Sinatra-inspired, <laughs> uh, low-ceremony web uh, framework, and uh, the the two guys who uh, who do most of the work on Nancy like to refer to it as the super duper happy path <laughs> to web development, um, <laughs> which uh, I can totally see. Um, yeah. So, in the same way that I've kind of written simple data because. I think that there's an awful lot of cruft associated with things like Entity Framework and N-Hibernate. Nancy strips away all the cruft that's associated with things like MVC frameworks. Um, So in the Ruby world, you've got Rails. And Rails is huge, and it's opinionated. And it says, you should use this and that and the other, and I'm just going to assume that what you're creating here is a REST API over a relational database. I'll generate all of that for you, and God help you if you try to change anything. Um, and what Sinatra does, uh, and therefore what Nancy does, is it says, I'm going to assume that you're writing a web application, and therefore you're going to need to respond to URLs. So I'll help you do that. Hmm. And then the rest of it, data access, uh, forms layout, you do that however you want to do that, and we'll just take care of passing those URLs and form posts or jQuery posts or whatever it might be, and we'll turn those into dynamic variables for you. Mm. And so it sits really, really nicely with simple data, and uh, quite a lot of people seem to use them together, and they do work quite nicely together. Wow. Yeah, it does seem like there's this lightweight, focused, sort of minimal movement going on that you you seem to be in the center of in some ways. Definitely. Yeah, I think there is, and I think that's good. Um, I think uh, in a lot of projects that I've seen, and particularly um, I do a lot of work with companies who have got sometimes very mature uh, web software, that they're looking to migrate to Azure. And there's so much code in there that is basically just boilerplate, and it's repeated over and over and over and over again. Um, And, I mean, I see people who've tied themselves up in knots trying to implement dependency injection, which is the exact opposite of the point of dependency injection. Um, I've worked on projects where... Uh, they had basically taken Link to SQL um, back in Visual Studio 2005, and they needed about three tables out of a 300-table database, but they just generated the model for the entire database, store procedures, views, the whole lot. So they had this enormous EDMX file or, or um, DBML file, uh, and every single thing in the database was modeled as a class. And this was just so they could do authentication and uh, and display order information. And so I think a lot of people are, are reacting against that and going, how can I, in as small amount of code as possible, get across the essence of what I actually want my application to do? Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and, you know, I think in C-sharp, link... Uh, introduced this idea of declarative programming, particularly with the, the link syntax itself, rather than having to say, this is how I want to loop over this, and this is how I want to aggregate that, and this is how I want to do my ordering. You just went, can you do this for me, please? And the compiler came along 
Um, and it's not necessarily smarter than you, but it won't take shortcuts. Um, and that got people into this state of mind where they were going, well, why should I have to write all this code to tell my application how to do everything? Why can't I just tell it what to do? Um, and it's something the C-sharp team are kind of progressing towards. I don't know if you had a chance to catch John Skeet's talk on how to do async await. As a matter of fact, async and await keywords. As a matter of fact, uh, I did a DNR TV with him in Norway, right. where he showed essentially what you're talking about is he 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 didn't use it. He showed how to do it in C sharp. Yeah. yeah, like how um, how he thinks it could be done, just as an exercise in you know how to how to provide an, an async keyword. That's brilliant. Um, doing it without the compiler syntax, uh, right. you kind of end up about 800 levels of indentation by the third await. Right. And, uh, you know, um, to do, we've got the task parallel framework, and so we can say this task and do this and then continue with that and then continue with something else and then continue with something else. But that very quickly gets all kinds of nested um, and Node.js, which is enormously popular at the moment, but that has the same thing. It's all very well kind of going, uh, it doesn't block, it never blocks, everything's handled through callbacks. But by the time you've kind of got the request in from the from the web browser and then you've passed the arguments into strings and then you've authenticated the user and then you've gone and got the user's shopping cart details and then you've added something to the shopping cart and then you've updated the stock control to say that's not in stock anymore, and then you finally return back, you're kind of 16 levels of callback. Um, and a nice async await syntax just does all that for you at one level of indentation. At Franklin's Net right now, you can get a DVD with over 11 hours of Billy Hollis on Silverlight 4 or 14 hours of Sahil Malik on SharePoint 2010, each for only $6.95. Order online at www.franklins.net. Are you looking to change jobs? Infusion Development has offices in New York City, Toronto, London, Dubai, and Poland. Infusion has hired a whole handful of happy.net rocks listeners. Contact me for an introduction at carl at franklins.net. Speaking of simple standards, you're supporting the OWIN uh, movement. What is that? The O-W-I-N? Um... Open web interface for .NET, um, and yes, I haven't been involved as much recently because I've been doing all sorts of things, and so that kind of took a back seat. But I'm the one who's responsible for the hideous delegate signature. Um, <laughs> what is it exactly? Owen, it's it's a it's a reaction to the fact that Microsoft's HTTP request and HTTP response objects are sealed um, and have internal protected constructors. Now, yeah, so you can't, I don't know. You can't make one. That's, um, it always which, seemed like a silly thing to seal a class to me. Yeah, it is. <laughs> um, and, and it's a silly thing for something like an HTTP request where... Uh, it's it's the it's a classic example of something where the implementation should be entirely separate from the contract. Why is there no IHTTP request? Um, and this is something that Microsoft. I think they're getting better at it, but um, it's taken a long time. And going back and reapplying these sorts of things seems to be something that they're finding um, it hard to find the time to do. So, writing a testable application, even ASP.MVC, which is designed to be more testable, um, it generates test projects for you using either um, MS Test or I think it supports MBUnit now because Phil Hacked likes that. Um, <laughs> but if you had to go in and hand crank all that code that it generates, like request stubs and response stubs and everything else, you're still, it's back to that thing of writing loads of boilerplate code to do something that should essentially be very, very straightforward. And so OWIN is a project um, that kind of came about 
with some guys who were all writing their own web servers and web frameworks um, and just went, if we had a common interface between the web server and the frameworks, then we could use your framework on my server or you could use my server and his framework or, or my framework and his server, and that would be really neat. And so um, they've kind of formed a working group and uh, are attempting to define this as a standard. Um, and my contribution was to pitch up and say, but you're using interfaces, and if you use interfaces, you have to have the assembly that the interface is defined in. Whereas if you used action and func delegates, then you wouldn't need those things. Um, and so the whole thing's been kind of uh, built around actions and funks um, that get passed backwards and forwards. Um, and the result being that there is a kind of reference implementation of the middleware that attaches the web server to the framework or to the multiple frameworks and can inject middleware and so on. Um, but that doesn't have to be the only implementation. And if someone thought they could do a better job, then they're perfectly um, at liberty to do that. It's very cool. Mm. It is very cool, and it's an interesting way of thinking about the problem as well. Like, it's just this. I feel like we're also trying to get closer to the metal all the time. It's so hard to actually alter the stream of data coming and going from a web server because you've got all this abstraction and pipelining. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And you just sort of think by the time, um, by the time a request has come in through IIS, ASP.NET has managed to get a look at it and turn it into an HTTP request object and serialize the first part of it into um, a, a dictionary and, and read all the cookies in and all this sort of stuff. And then it passes it off to ASP.NET MVC, and MVC looks at it, tries to work out which controller should be handling it, which action should be handling it, tear more values off the request and turn them into parameters. And then, finally, if you're lucky and there aren't any HTTP modules waiting there to have their turn, you get to start doing something. And um, on a web server that's trying to serve kind of 2,500 requests a second per core, that makes it hard. Yeah, that's unlikely is what that is. But do you think this is primarily a performance issue or a code maintainability issue? Um. Do you mean the the movement towards the metal and this whole idea around Owen as well is you know I I have these debates when we're talking about doing stuff like inserting into HTTP headers and so forth about where do we do this do we build a module do we subclass this I mean there's so many different ways to go about things when you're living in the IIS ASP.NET/MVC uh, space and yeah. just when you strip a lot of that out it gets a heck of a lot simpler so for the code maintenance part it makes a lot of sense but from a performance point of view, I just don't know if that's the motivator because you know the I'll, I'll, there are other ways to solve that too. Oh yeah, no, I don't. I don't think performance. Um, I mean, you know, in these days of, of cloud servers and and cheap disk and memory and and processors, um, scaling out and scaling up are not uh, particularly prohibitive anymore. Um, but I do think that people like the idea of having uh, lower level control over what's going on. Sure. And yeah, I, I do think, um, I mean, it's, it's the code maintainability. If there's less code between the TCP socket and your framework, it feels naturally like that's a good thing. Yeah. Um, and if there's less code in your application, that's less code to go wrong. Um, and if everything's handled through interfaces or, or delegates, then at any point in that pipeline, you can inject something in in a test environment, and as far as everything beyond that point is concerned, that might as well have come from from a TCP socket. Um, mm. So you can create a dictionary of headers, um, and you don't have to patch in everything else. If you're just testing something in your your header handling, then you can just bung in a, a dictionary of of string string and pass that through and let it handle it. Whereas if you wanted to do that with an HTTP request, 
Um, you can get funky and go in and do reflection and call constructors that you're not supposed to. But again, then you've got to maintain all that reflection code yeah. and worry that Microsoft are going to change the way that works internally on the next release and suddenly all your tests break. Yeah, I guess this is the whole dance here is wrestling on what dependencies you're willing to take and how much you trust the underlying code. Uh, and we are all at the place now, it seems like, where, where you dig into this stuff. When you bump into a sealed class, it makes you run the other way. Yeah. Mm. I, you you seal that? I can't why? trust it. Why have you sealed it? What are you hiding? What are you hiding? Right. <laughs> um, or alternatively, um, I mean, the standard case for sealing a class is so that someone else can't come along and create a derived copy of that class and then pass it back up into the framework and cause mischief um, or just break it accidentally um, through through ineptitude. But I think there are now a generation of programmers on, on .NET who are going, please don't protect me like that. I yeah. don't want to be protected like that. I'm a big boy. I've been yeah. doing this for 10 years now. I can, I can choose whether I'm going to run with the scissors um, right. And you sealing that class just makes me want to go and rewrite the whole stack from the ground up with an unsealed version of that class. So that's what I'm going to do. Bye. <laughs> Is that the real description of Owen right there? Uh, I think I think that sums up certainly some of the people who were involved. That's their attitude. Sure. Um, I think there is a growing movement of people who they're not anti-Microsoft. Um, no. And they're not anti.net, but, uh, and I include myself in, in this number, I would like to see .net um, as a core framework shrink back down. Um, to say Silverlight size? <laughs> so, you know, WPF and, and ASP.net and all these sort of things, those aren't part of what you call a core framework. You could take just the, the system and uh, system.network and system.io and those few dozen or so core namespaces and build anything you wanted if you wrote, if you sort of plugged in an OWIN web server and um, I'd say you probably want to keep ADO.net because no one wants to rewrite that and the simple data needs it, so I don't want to be uh, rewriting that. But, you know, Mono doesn't come with WPF, it comes with GTK Sharp. Um, and so even for something as kind of low level as a, as a client uh, development framework, it's possible to, to do that from the primitives. And so I think a lot of people would like it if .NET became a bit more like Java and the JVM or, or Ruby or Python, where um, they just have the primitives and then all these other things are available to, to install if they want to. But if they don't, then they can just build things from, from those primitives. So, Mark, what's next for you in simple.data? What's, your, what's, what's on your horizon? Um, I'm very, very close to 1.0. Um, and... Uh, yeah, I've got to do having for the queries. I think that's the last feature on the queries. Um, do a bit of work to support the guys who are writing adapters against non-SQL databases and some code cleanup and some optimization work. And then I'm calling it 1.0, and then I'm going to walk away from it for a while. So I'll support it. So if you're out there listening and you're going, oh, no, he's going to dump it, um, I'll, I'll kind of make sure it carries on working and so forth. I'll probably write a couple more adapters for it, like the Azure adapter. Um, but uh, my next plan is to port Node.js to F-sharp. Nice. There seems to be a ton of energy around Node.js. There's all kinds of talk about porting it to .NET. Yes. I mean, Microsoft are working with Joyent now mm -hmm. on, on getting a native build of Node to run on Windows, um, which is great and fantastic. Um, and I think having Node on the same server as kind of SQL Server 2008 R2 has a lot going for it. Mm -hmm. um, 
but at the same time, like I said earlier, JavaScript, um, its evented callback type model is very good for doing that kind of non-blocking, uh, for expressing that non-blocking code, but it doesn't necessarily do it in a particularly readable or maintainable way, whereas F-sharp already has the async keyword. And so um, someone, and I can't remember the name of the blog, but um, I will try and find a link to it and uh, and send it on to you guys, showed an example of um, doing something in Node.js and then how that would look in F-sharp using the async keyword. Oh, yeah. Basically, async this, async that, async the other, async right back to the stream. Nice. Whereas Node.js was getting itself all wrapped up in uh, in braces and parentheses and that weird thing that it does where you have to create a function and then put .call on the end of it and and whatever else. And even if you use CoffeeScript, you're still ending up with um, multiple levels of white space indentation. Whereas F-sharp can do all of that um, in a much more clean and tidy way and it also has access to all the .NET framework awesomeness and uh, and you can sort of hook into uh, task parallel library and, and ADO.NET and, and all those sort of uh, the lower level bits and pieces so I think um, node.fs is probably not that difficult to, to at least do a proof of concept. All right, cool. Well, um, thanks very much for hanging out with us this hour, and it, it sounds like great stuff, and uh, like I say, you know, get some sleep. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think I need some sleep. I think I've um, done about 99% of the talking there, so I apologize. Oh, no, that's good. That's why you're here. Okay, good. Thank you, Mark. Well, no, that was fun. And we'll see you next time on .NET Rocks. .NET Rocks is recorded and produced by Pwop Productions, providing professional audio, audio mastering, video, post-production, and podcasting services. Online at www.pwop.com. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter and offering custom on-site classes in Microsoft development technology with expert developers online at www.franklins.net. For more .NET Rocks episodes and to subscribe to the podcast feeds, go to our website at www.dotnetrocks.com. Got a transmitter van.